The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways in which talking about politics, power, identity, pop culture, and so much more just got a lot more post-post-racial. You could say all that or just call this show about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me in the Panoply Studios in New York is Rebecca Carroll, the critic at large for the Los Angeles Times and the editor of Special Projects at WNYC. Welcome back, Rebecca. Thank you, Anna. Hi. Hi. And also joining us from D.C. is Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent at Slate.com and also now one of the hosts of a fantastic podcast that you should all be listening to called Trumpcast. Glad to have you back, Jamel. Glad to be back. So, guys, today, a conversation we want to have and are going to have before the end of the year. Well, maybe I should back up by saying when I walked in the Panoply Studios this afternoon, what, half an hour ago, there was a large flat screen TV upon which Barack Obama was appearing because he was giving his last p- press conference of the year. I heard it might be the last press conference of his administration, but I kind of doubt that. Uh, then Rebecca walked in and, and there was just a, a kind of feeling of like... <laughs> There was some, as you put it, it was, it's the end of an era. Yeah. And, and that segues very nicely into the subject of today's show, which is the end of a, the Obama presidency. The fact that we're not going to have Obama as our president anymore. We're not going to have a black president anymore. I'm not sure we'll ever have one again. Although I actually do feel optimistic. Well, I feel optimistic that if the United States continues to exist, we will have a black another black president. Or you could just put it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so in some ways we can, in many ways, we can look back at the Obama administration and celebrate in spite of what is going to come after it. But there are things that the quote unquote Obama effect was and wasn't able to accomplish. So first off, I want to start with something that's been read very widely this week, which is a piece for The Atlantic by Ta-Nehisi Coates. My president was black. Rebecca, did you read it? I did. I did read it. And I thought it was really very fair. I thought it was uh, obviously uh, beautifully written, but stunningly and strikingly fair and mm-hmm. really looked because, you know, Tanahasi has been critical of, mm-hmm. of Obama, but I felt like he gave it a very round, fleshed out objective, but also the right combination of objective mm-hmm. and also why, it, it, why this was his president. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jamel? Um, have you read it? What do you think of the piece? I also read it, and I think fair is a a good way of describing it. I thought what made the piece exceptionally strong was it was a different angle of critique for Obama, one that I hadn't really seen before, and one that sort of answers, I think, one of the questions some uh, observers and critics have had about Obama, which is basically why didn't he expect the kind of opposition he received? Mm-hmm. Because as early as 2009, plenty of people on the left were saying, listen, you're going to face sort of extreme Republican opposition if this if if your administration looks anything like the previous Democratic administration. Coates provides what I think is a pretty persuasive answer for why Obama just was not like equipped or prepared to deal with the fact that uh, of that opposition or deal with the fact of really what, you know, in the aftermath of this election feels like the mania that gripped much of America, or at least a substantial chunk of America in mm-hmm. response to Obama's tenure as president. Can you tell me what how, how you define what that different angle of critique that Ta-Nehisi leveled is. 
what what is that effort? Yeah, what is it? All right. So what it is is Tanahasi basically says that Obama truly trusts uh, white people, or at least mm-hmm. he he can he communicates the sense that he truly trusts white people. And mm-hmm. Tanahasi argues that this is a function of his upbringing that he right. it wasn't just that he was raised by white parents. Or, or rather by his white mother and grandparent, but he grew up in Hawaii, a place where racial categories and are are somewhat more fluid, where there isn't the same kind of uh, you know, visible reminders of discrimination and, right. and and such that exist on the mainland. And so his 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 sort of lived environment, um, the fact that the people who raised him were white Americans and good decent people has basically in Tanahasi's reading given Obama the sense that at heart people are basically decent and that there is always kind of ground to cooperate, move together, so on and so forth. In the Atlantic, also in the Atlantic rather, Tressy McMillan Cottom kind of riffs off of Tanahasi's piece and makes, I think, another critical observation here, which is that Obama didn't have the requisite skepticism in her phrasing. He didn't know white folks the right way. He didn't sort of hmm. grasp the extent to which there is, I guess I'd call it like a a white racial interest that many white Americans are going to try to protect. And she suggests even that sort of Obama's cultural position, um, his sense that he could glide between white worlds and black worlds really did act as almost a delusion that like masked or, or, sort of obscured the very real tensions and power conflicts that exist. What's interesting to me about that read of him, because I don't necessarily disagree with it, but it makes him come off as, I mean, he's not a dumb man, but it, it feels so naive as to be, as to be stupid. I mean, he's, he's a grown ass man. He's a uh, he's a black man in the United States, and despite the way he may have grown up, he he has to have some understanding of the divisions in this country that that isn't so Pollyanna-ish. And he's also married to a black woman who doesn't have the same, who wasn't situated in the same ways that he was. I, I don't think it's Pollyanna-ish, and I say this as a black woman who was raised by white parents, and actually ha- I have had the complete antithetical response, which mm-hmm. is that I trust white people less. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. I know them real mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. in a, the opposite way there. But I do think that Obama felt like, one, he kind of armed himself with a black family. That in some ways, Michelle and the family that they made gave him this kind of black armor that allowed for him to to be black in the way that he wanted to be black while also maintaining what Coates and, and what Jamal just was talking about, you know, this kind of fluidity between races. And at the end of the day, I mean, there there is the point, therein lies the point when it doesn't matter whether he was raised by white parents, doesn't matter what, whether I was raised by white parents. When I go out into the world, I'm a black woman, he's a black man, and mm-hmm. that's what it is. But I, you know, I think that that's a really nuanced kind of way of thinking. And I also think he's very traditional in terms of values like you know in terms of like hope looking for the bright spot and looking for the good in people he's not cynical he's not you know he doesn't wear his anger if he has it and i assume that he does so i don't know i don't know that it's pollyanna-ish so much as as he is that kind of you know that guy who wants to find the goodness and and i think his he's 
again, he's created that in his family. He's, I think Michelle reflects that, that, that there is goodness to be found in people. So I don't know. A lot of my frustrations with him are, are, are bubbling up, I think, right, right at this very moment, because some of it's about mourning the end of his presidency. Some of it's a frustration based on stuff he was just saying in the press, press conference or stuff he wasn't saying, mm-hmm. rather. But also just that he didn't seem to get it. Jamel, do you, do you think that he does understand the divisions in this country a lot better than he did before? I mean, do you think he's learned Something? Yeah, I don't know. I keep on going back and forth about this because, again, I, I don't think he's dumb either. And I, I have to imagine that kind of just being in his position over the last uh, eight years has shown him the depth of these divisions. Uh, I, I think maybe where the difference lies or, or the problem lies or, or, what, or whatever is that – for me, I'm willing to kind of entertain the idea that these just might be intractable, right? That mm-hmm. like there there really right. is no ultimately bridging them. They're just kind of an enduring part of what it means to be an American or live in the United States. And we can manage them and we can massage them and we can find it all in little pockets of safety. But ultimately, that's this is just what they are. And I, I don't think Obama – Obama does not let himself entertain that. And that might be the difference. There there's, mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be a sense of what you could f- fairly describe as fatalism about racial divides mm-hmm. in this country. I tend to think that that fatalism is important. Admitting that possibility is, is an important thing to do. I th- yeah, I totally agree with you. With the, and that's what I was trying to say about the values. His values are very specific of, you know, they go high when – folks go low they go high that's what they do and i feel you yeah know, but it seems like he doesn't even he's not even acknowledging that they're going low like that's <laughs> right I mean, you could, that, that's my problem yeah, here yeah but, i mean what i was going to say is not only acknowledge but sometimes mm-hmm. you got to get low too yeah, you yeah. know to really or or that fighting people who go low is not necessarily going low right 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 yeah. in, in, in and of itself sorry jamel um, oh, no worries sorry. no no no, no, no. <sighs> yeah so it, it's one of my kind of enduring my personal enduring frustrations with him, and and you know, th- there have been times during his administration when I've thought, well, he he's just not he's not showing us his true self because he's not allowed to. That actually, you know, once he leaves office, then the gloves are going to come off, and he's going to say what he's really been thinking all this time. But again, that may not happen. Like I, I, I may be, I may be waiting for this very cathartic moment where he like goes off, so to speak, on all the people who went after him over the past eight to ten years. And that there's going to be some clarifying, defining, cathartic moment in that. But I think I'm starting to believe, you know, come to the conclusion that's probably not going to happen either. I think he he goes off. I think he he really gives that all that authenticity and and frustration and anger with Michelle. I think he does that. I think he channels a lot of his emotional. What through her or at her? I think at or within. Like uh-huh. I think he looks to his family as the place where he can be that. It's like, you know, your kid who is really, really well behaved out in the world and at home you get the worst behavior because they feel safe. That is <laughs> You're the not truth. Making it sound like a very good home, home <laughs> well, life. It's because they feel safe. It's because yeah. they feel safe and they and they feel like this is where I can be exactly who I am. Okay, but what gives you that sense? Why? Because that's I, what partners do? I mean, No, do you- because I think that the I, what I see in that family is a real this kind of impenetrable, you know, bond. Like, I really mm-hmm. feel like they are all so deeply composed in public. You know, we've seen First Families before. I don't know. I feel like they are so, they are so cohesive yeah. and so composed. And people, human beings, aren't like that all the time. So they've got to let it go and let it out somewhere. Well, sure, sure. 
and to me, and just experientially as a parent, that's why I use that analogy, because yeah. that makes perfect sense to me. So, but Jamal, what do you think is going to happen in late January of 2017 after he leaves office? Like, do you think, how do you think he's going to present himself to the public? Like, what do you think is going to happen with him? I don't mean what's going to happen with the Trump administration, but like, what is, is he going to disappear for a while? Is he going to... Th- then truly feel free to to speak his mind in the ways that I have fantasies about, but probably aren't <laughs> going to come true. I mean, what do you like? What is going to happen on like, let's say January twenty fifth? Yeah, that's a great question. I haven't given it that much thought. I don't think he's going to speak his mind because I, I sort of I agree that I think he is largely speaking his mind. Um, mm-hmm. Obama seems to be to his core someone who believes in the basic decency of this country, who believes in institutions, who believes that. Who, who truly believes the arc of the universe bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. And that to me suggests that you know, if he if he comments on, on politics after he leaves office, if he gets involved in politics, it will be in the mode of someone trying to bring people together. He's an able politician and partisan fighter, but he's not really a partisan in his bones. He doesn't really think that there are intractable sides here and so i don't think i don't think we're going to see like a a more forthright obama than we already have i tend to think he's probably just going to disappear for a bit like he's just gonna mm-hmm. like you know which i don't i don't begrudge be, be spotted in the woods north yeah. of new york city <laughs> with, um. with wandering around with hillary <laughs> i don't know i think he's going to be around because one of the i mean one girl's going off to college but the other is still in high school i mean i think until they're both in college he's going to be he's going to be present well, yeah, public, publicly, yeah. publicly. Okay, yeah. I'm like, of course he's not going to yeah. go away. <laughs> no, but around, like yeah. he's not going to go into a cabin in the woods. You know, what I mean, until the girls are off to college anyway. Right. I think that you know after election day, I, I did feel very profoundly a sense of loss because because Hillary lost and and that lost potential of what that might mean and symbolically and, and in terms of policy. But I also felt like it was very. Again, projection, humiliating. Like I was humiliated for my president that this was the man who was going to follow him or is going to follow him. Yeah. Even more so when it, they went and had that meeting oh, in that picture. Of the photograph. Them. Oh, my um, God. Um, that I was just it made me, it made me want to throw up. Cringeworthy. It made me want to throw image up. I've seen. Yeah. It's, it was Probably horrible. Any, yeah. I was just kind of fanficking what <laughs> what might happen after he leaves office. Let's go back many, many, many years and I want to ask, where were each of you when Obama was elected and what were you feeling? Rebecca. I was feeling elated. I was, uh, I guess the inauguration was, when did we get the vote? Because I have two images in my head. One is being in the office and hearing, can you feel a <laughs> someone blasting? The Wait, when did, when did we get the vote? Um, like as in women, when did a, black like, people. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. When did the vote? When did we know? At oh, what hour? I have no. I don't know. Because Jamel, also, do you remember how? At what point in the evening on on election day of two thousand eight we knew? Well, polls closed. The the first calls were like right at eight, and Indiana got okay. called okay. first. And so, I mean, for me, that I was like, oh, obviously one. But I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think uh, the election was called till like ten or ten thirty. Okay, but I don't. So I probably. The, the image I very uh, have very vividly is sitting on the couch with my son mm-hmm. and my son saying the president is brown like me. Mm-hmm. But he would have been three. <laughs> so I don't know if he would have been up at eight o'clock or whatever. Yeah. Or I think you... that was more Inauguration Day okay. that we watched. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Jamel? Where, where were you and what were you, what were you thinking and feeling? Well, I was in college 
And I think we were just watching the election returns, a bunch of us in one of the common areas. And uh, I was, you know, I never was one of the hope and change types, but I was sort of like, hey, this is, this is, uh, this is good. <laughs> yeah. oh my god good news yeah so i mean very under, understated to me <laughs> i i you know you know you know i don't really go above like my my emotional sort of tone is sort of in this like middle range so mm-hmm. i don't i don't get i don't get like excited yeah. i don't get very depressed either which you know you're lucky <laughs> you're lucky well i'll um I'll, I'll tell you guys my story which was that i was at home in in queens where i then lived uh, with my then husband uh, and my then and still father and, and then and still sister. Um, my father and sister had come over to watch the election returns with us. And I don't recall whether or not I was concerned he was going to lose. I, I don't remember that feeling. I remember a feeling of a lot of anxiety for all the months leading up to it and, and how much I hated McCain and then Sarah Palin and like a lot of emotion around that. But I don't remember that I was I don't know. I don't know that I was really acutely afraid that Obama was going to lose. I wasn't confident he was going to win, but I don't I don't recall the same sort of anxiety that I, let's say I felt a couple of weeks ago. That said, after he after he won and there was a lot of footage from I think Grant Park in Chicago and there was oh, yeah. there was I don't know if we were watching CNN or MSNBC or what whatever. We we're watching cable news and they you know they're scanning the crowd and there's there was a shot a number of times of Jesse Jackson crying. And then I started crying because it it almost felt like seeing Jesse Jackson cry let allowed me to feel like I could exhale. And I don't know what I was holding my breath from. And I wasn't actually holding my breath, but it it, it was it it wasn't just the anxiety of the election cycle that I felt I was letting go of. I felt like I was letting or at least watching or witnessing a, a person much older than I am, Jesse Jackson, you know, who had very different experiences who I would also say, you know, is similar to my dad in that way, and that they're both around the same age. That I was see that I was seeing the the realization of something that must have felt impossible to them. Certainly felt impossible to me, but it must have felt even more impossible impo- to them coming true. So it, it it just felt like the the history of that moment. Even though I was acutely aware that my part in that history is pretty tiny <laughs> in the whole scheme I mean, of things. It, what you just said is the absolute definition of empathy. <laughs> That's what that means when you feel it so deeply that it feels like you are exhaling and mm-hmm. and having that emotion. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what that is. I was I was sobbing and I and I was I was I remember my husband and he was comforted me, but I couldn't explain to him that he didn't need to comfort me, <laughs> right? Because I, yeah. like I wasn't it wasn't something I had to be comforted from. It was right. just I was surprised my dad didn't cry actually. Um, uh, for the, to the, I think maybe he was in shock. Yeah, I think maybe right. he was in shock. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you know, there he doesn't cry very often, but usually it would be at a moment yeah. like that. So that's my story. Um, so Jamel, you're very soaked in political and policy journalism. That sounds kind of gross. You're very, very <laughs> literate about political <laughs> and policy journalism, and I'm curious what for you have been the things that Obama accomplished during his presidency that, that make you feel like he really delivered on that hope and change message that you referenced a little while ago? Okay, so three things. The first is, I think the stimulus package um, will stand as one of sort of the most important things that came out of those first few years of the Obama administration. It 
uh, saved the economy from a second Great Depression. It laid billions of dollars in investments and technologies and approaches that are now coming to fruition. Um, it was very important. And there's a great book by uh, Michael Grunewald called The New New Deal, which mm-hmm. goes into detail about sort of why that stimulus package was important. I will defend the Affordable Care Act. It is far from a perfect bill. It is very flawed in many ways. I think the, I think even within the constraints uh, presented in 2009, 2010, it was not as far reaching as it could have been. But it, it was, you know, even if, even if it gets repealed next year, it will stand as when the United States made a commitment to the idea of universal coverage and it has created, I think, among um, many Americans an expectation that there will be universal coverage. And if anything comes after the Affordable Care Act, at the very least, we will learn from the mistakes of it and go even further. And I think that is – I think in laying that groundwork that that is important. Uh, and the, the third thing is just that Obama – save the Civil Rights Department or the Justice Department Mm. um, or Civil Rights Division. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obama turned it into an actual vehicle for investigating uh, discrimination, for investigating uh, police abuse, for protecting voting rights. Uh, in you know, given that the past three years have see, has has shown or seen that Republican lawmakers across the country attempt to roll back the expansion of the ballot, um, the fact that Obama reinvigorated the Justice Department and reinvigorated Civil Rights Division, I think it's going to be a lasting and important important move. I mean, what I'm afraid of is that in, in, in a Trump administration, you know, there'll be prompt rollbacks, prompt um, right. decisions, not enforce that stuff. And we'll end up looking back at this period of the Justice Department as being a little like, um, you know, this, the, the eight year interregnum where Ulysses S. Grant was, you know, spearheading campaigns against the, the violation of civil rights um, before the violators ended up winning. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I mean, it's it's probably very likely that the Trump administration will dismantle the division, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Jeff Sessions, I mean, it's not just that the, that the likely attorney general is someone with whom I have uh, disagreements, but that Jeff Sessions is like a, a straight up legitimate opponent of civil mm-hmm. rights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how much do you think how much do you think that that Obama's investment in the civil rights division? Maybe the question is something more like how much did. Obama's presidency embolden American citizens to speak out against, you know, state-sponsored violence against co- people of color in the ways that we've seen. So, you know, right, the Panthers emerged not sort of in the 1950s, but like in the middle of the 1960s, right? They they emerge as sort of improvement begins to come. Like, I do think that the fact of electing the black president put existing inequality and unfairness and racism and even starker relief mm-hmm. and that that empowered people mm-hmm. and just optically you know i mean even if it didn't directly um uh help establish or um or put forth the black lives matter m- movement i think for the the young folks who who established and founded the movement to see the leader of the free world black yeah made a, a difference what i wanted to ask with you both of you was how his presidency and whether that's literally his presidency or just the past eight years during which he happened to be president has affected you personally and professionally how has your life changed i do think that that culturally 
And in terms of art and um, media, creative media and expression, because the first family has has such an appreciation for art and um, creative expression and have ha- have hosted so many concerts and and you know of course had Hamilton there and and have ha- amazing beautiful art uh, much of it is African American art um, and but and that they that that's just sort of part and and parcel with who they are and and how they live um, I think that that has has had a direct impact on me and my own creative expression, both in my, you know, more opinion essays mm-hmm. slash literary writing or, or whatnot, and journalism too, uh, just a, a freer, a freer sense, but also as a parent, certainly, my child, my mixed brown, black identifying son, spent the last eight years equating blackness with power. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty extraordinary, particularly for me, having grown up adopted into a white family, raised in an all-white town, and feeling the absolute opposite about yeah. blackness. Yeah. You know, he wishes he looked more brown <laughs> a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, that has been pretty profound, and I yeah. feel sad. I mean, I feel sad about, the you know, the end of, of the Obama effect. Um, well, anyway. I don't think it's the end of the Obama. I don't no, it's, it's not the, but, it's the end of an the era. Effect. It's the end of an yeah, era, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it is the end of, 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 of his presidency. And I feel I feel deeply mournful and you know kind of fearful mm-hmm. for my kid mm-hmm. because I think that what o- the Obamas and Obama gave us was you know whether you buy it or not a lot of hope you know a lot of decency a lot of hipness a lot of mm-hmm. cachet mm-hmm. and that I can tell has had a great impact on mm-hmm. on my son. Mm-hmm. So Jamel, what about you? How how have the last eight years you know again directly direct his presidency or indirectly from it um, affected you personally and also professionally? You know, well, I basically have had my entire adult life thus far with Obama as Mm -hmm. as president. You know, he was elected my last year of college. Um, He will leave, uh, he will leave office as I turn 30 next April. For me personally, Obama has just basically shown the limits of mainstream politics for black people. I think watching Obama both struggle and succeed, seeing the reaction to him, for me, has revealed a lot about the extent to which this country is still unwilling to accept black people as fully people, as fully black. Mm -hmm. And that has like definitely kind of shifted my perspective and my politics and, and has sort of had a real and, and significant impact on, on I think, how I approach my work and, and how I approach my political views. That's the big thing. I mean, beyond that, you know, I've, I've had my entire early career as a journalist under Obama. I'm sure that has made some impact on kind of how I approach journalism in ways I, I'm not uh, reflective enough to articulate mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll be thinking. I think I'll be thinking about your question for a while because it has meant something to me that our president, our president is black, and I'm not entirely sure 
what that's what what that meaning is for me but it, it's it's there and it is hard isn't it i mean yeah. i feel like we're still we're he's still our president and i i also i know that it it, it is more specific or, or more lengthy or in-depth than what i've said i just don't i don't yeah. quite know yet i mean i mean i don't know how i'd answer the question i just yeah. posed other than that there was there was something very there was something that was that i felt was deep within me when i was younger a certain frustration with the world, with the, at least the disconnect between the world I saw around me in the day to day, street on the streets, in the subway, et cetera, and the world that I saw represented in positions of power, and increasing frustration and kind of anger about it. That it still exists. I mean, it's not like everything got better or or a lot better, but there was something about his election that made me, for the first time, feel. A certain optimism, perhaps. I don't know what I'm trying to say because I don't know how to say it. But, but there was the, his election meant something to me because it it it, it felt like a fully modern, a fully modern thing. There, right. it, it, I felt like the country was fully modern for the first time in my adult life. And granted, I think that's an yeah. excellent way to say it. It also reminds me of when we first met um, some years back, and I interviewed you about. Jezebel and how you envisioned it and you spoke immediately about not being frustrated by not mm-hmm. seeing women and women of color in positions yeah. of power or as role models and that that you wanted to make that happen and I, I I have to think that as we're all sort of trying to figure out what what it means to mm-hmm. have a black president mm-hmm. that it's going to make us do bigger and better things I hope so yeah yeah, yeah. I mean I feel grateful to have lived through it and I really feel like that sounds like such a mournful thing to say and I am I do I do feel mournful about it as well as agitated about the future and what, what it might hold. But I feel very lucky to have been alive, you know. How <laughs> lucky we are to which, be alive which, right now. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's from Hamilton. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's totally corny sounding, but I meant it. I mean no, it. No. I mean it. AC? Yes? Do you want us to keep going? Because there's something else I didn't get to. But we... I'm feeling pretty good about this right now, but there got to be some points of frustration about Obama's presidency that we haven't brought up yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring it back there, but like Jesus, um, and you came in pissed off, so I want to know what was up with. Well, that. Uh, okay, well, I, I came in pissed off because I I, I feel like I, I don't know where the adults are. I mean, it's a, that's partly directed at him, but but I don't know where the adults are. I'm used to throughout my life being surprised by certain situations or perhaps even scared, but usually there's an adult, whether that person is your parent when you're a kid or the president of the United States that when everything seems to go to shit and there's a lot of questionable, you know, there's a lot of questions around that, that someone steps up and tries to make sense of it for you. And and I think that that's why I'm frustrated, frustrated with, with him. Although I realize the reasons that he, maybe he can't do that. And I'm, what I'm referring to is the election not, not just not, not just the election of Donald Trump, but the way the election unfolded and the various, the various intelligence intelligence agencies that have that have publicly claimed that Russia had something to do with it. So yeah, I'm frustrated with him. But again, I don't know if that's something about him. In I'm particular. frustrated. I'm frustrated with the the way that he managed the election, mainly because I I do look to and believe that he is a person of principle and. When he was campaigning for Hillary and said, you know, this person is unfit to about Trump is unfit. Those were the words that he used unfit to be president. He's still unfit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he it wasn't like he was unfit and then he became fit. Yeah. He's still unfit. Yeah. And so where does he where as somebody with I think 
a great deal of integrity. Yeah. How does he reconcile that? And why doesn't he say, you know, look, I can't come out here and be like, this man is terrible, but I do want to address the way in which I talked about him. I meant it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah. And I meant it. And, uh, you know, so then we have to move forward with that. Yeah. Yeah, there's there, there's a little bit of feeling like that I'm being gaslit, not by not by President Obama, but just by the whole fucking yeah, country, right, right. really. Yeah. Um, you know, and there, there's there's something on on the script that that we had you know, the outline for today's show where where I was going to ask Jamel not just the ways in which Obama delivered on his hope and change message, but where he did not. And Jamel. You know, I'd love to hear your take, whether it's in regards to the election that just happened or stuff from years ago. Where are your frustrations with him? Where do they lie? I think my, my you know, in, in the time uh, we have uh, for this podcast, I think the best, the more, most succinct thing I could say is that my, my frustration with him has been that he did not seem, I wouldn't say, it's not that he wasn't a fighter, it's that he didn't seem to understand or really internalize when movement required sort of intractability and partisanship. So like Mm -hmm. Obama's often called Lincoln-esque for a lot of very good reasons. But the the thing that made Lincoln was that he was magnanimous and cerebral and deliberate when the time called for it. But when the time called for the thinking of a general – the thinking of someone who refused to be magnanimous, Lincoln mm-hmm. did that too. He was able to do both. And Obama isn't able to do both. And I think that has resulted – I mean, I think that's partially <laughs> partially uh, resulted in, in Trump at the very least, or at least the institutional conditions that help lead to Trump. And that's, that's just – that's – that's just my frustration. I, he he. So here it is. Here's here's the most succinct way I could put it. Obama always saw the 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 Republican Party as just an opponent and never realized that eventually they became enemies. Mm-hmm. Well mm-hmm. said. I think I'm gonna pivot now to something a little different. Well, first of all, I'm gonna pivot to the recommendations. But within the recommendations, we're gonna try something a little bit different because we're taking next week off. And that means the week following will be the last show for the year. We are putting together a reading list that we're going to be discussing during that last show of the year. So with a question for the two of you, this sounds very circular and weird, <laughs> labyrinthine. Uh, what do you think our listeners, or just Americans in general, should be reading with regards to race in their kind of year-end reading list or New Year 2017 reading list? Have to read Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad. Why? And it is masterfully written, and it is stands above and beyond a lot of the sort of quote unquote art that's been made about slavery mm-hmm. uh, in the past year or two. It's imaginative, and it's also deeply compassionate, and really, it feels like nonfiction, mm-hmm. but it's fiction. Mm-hmm. And I also just finished Wesley Lowry's book, They Can't Kill Us All, which I reviewed for the LA Times. I reviewed both for the LA Times. And I'm not going to say too much about that because I felt kind of mixed about the book. But mm-hmm. but um, but I do think it's it's a, a necessary book. Okay. Um, I mean, I could think of several others. Jamel, do you have some on the, uh, on the tip of your tongue? Well, I'm all about the, the classics. Um, Go ahead. So, yeah. Let's hear it. Do it. <laughs> and so what I'm reading right now is W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, which is a 
750-page essay on Reconstruction, and it was published in 1935, and it sort of constitutes the first revisionist, major revisionist history of Reconstruction. Eric Foner's book in, in I think, the, the, in the 70s or early 80s, Reconstruction, which is kind of right. a definitive work on the period, is very much indebted to Du Bois' take. Much of Reconstruction historiography today is indebted to Du Bois' take. So it's, it's nice and interesting to just read read him to see sort of how it was influential, why it was influential. And that's the, the what made it influential, in short, is that Du Bois shows, and I mean, he both takes it as premise and shows that enslaved people were people. They were people with full agency. They were not simply docile. They weren't easily controlled. They were people with full agency who liberated themselves. Mm-hmm. And he places all of this in kind of a broad Marxist framework, which is interesting and I think provocative even now. But I think if if you are, especially if you are trying to understand sort of the historical forces behind the current moment, if you're trying to understand the broad historical forces for resistance even to Trump going forward, this is a very important and uh, vital book to read. So there's that. It's the first thing. The second thing is the classic. It came out recently, but it's very good. It's called Blood at the Root. A Racial Cleansing in America. It's by a man named Patrick Phillips, who is white. He grew up in Forsyth County, Georgia, which is just outside of Atlanta. And it is a book about the racial cleansing of Forsyth County in 1912, whereby every black resident was driven out of the town. And it's Phillips describing what and how that happened. And it is, I think, a, a chilling look at a particular instance of uh, extreme racial violence or racial pogrom, really, that is basically forgotten in American memory. And why I think it's important in this moment is it's an illustration of something that I think people need to take seriously, which is that forward movement is not guaranteed. In fact, it is often not the case in the United States that we have we are sort of the, the products of a long period of um, of advancement, but that advancement is in a lot of ways an aberration. And America has been racial pogroms against blacks. It has been been ugly violence, um, just as much as it's been sort of uh, progress and hope. Thank you. I'm. I think the thing that I'd recommend is that is that our listeners read the piece that we referenced at the beginning of the show, which is. I don't know if it's the cover story of, I think, I think it it's the cover story. Uh, so Ta-Nehisi Coates is my president was black, which, you know, we, we, we didn't really sum up. I mean, we kind of, we kind of touched on some things, but it's, it's quite epic. I'm not sure how many words it is, but it's, I printed it out and it was 50, 50 pages, but it's well worth reading. You know, I think what, what will be interesting going forward is there will be other kind of uh, post-mortems, if I can call it that uh, on Obama's presidency. There already have been, but there'll be a, a fair number of them within the next two months. But what will be interesting to me are the ones that come out after that, like the mm-hmm. ones after we have a little bit of mm-hmm. distance. And believe me, I don't want a little bit of distance from from him in a way. Yeah. Like I want him to have some distance from us because he's he's worked very hard over I'm the hoping, past eight years. I'm but, hoping he's given us a reserve. Yeah. A little bit of a reserve that yeah. we can draw from. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that is all for today. As usual, as always, our producer is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Alana Milner, Laura Mayer, 
and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of delightful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. We've also got a phone number, so give us a call. Ready? 612-888-RACE. Again, that's 612-888-RACE. If you'd like to email us or send us a voice memo, the address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. And of course, you can always follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Jamel and Rebecca, I'm Anna Holmes, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.